Hey, this is Steve. This podcast is all about making the gospel relevant to your life. That means discovering the good news of Jesus, no matter what you're going through today. In this second part of Paul Stippick's two-part series, Paul shows us that Jesus understood who he was, that he was one, united with his Father. Yet he had a specific set of practices that would strengthen that relationship. What were Jesus' key disciplines? And as a follower of Christ, how can I implement those in my life? Good morning. Let's start off with some scripture. So if you are willing and able, please stand for the reading of it. So we're going to be doing John chapter 15, verses 18 through 20. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you? A servant is not greater than... If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Jesus, thank you for allowing us to gather this morning and spend some time with each other. God, I thank you so much for what you've been doing in my heart and the hearts of the people in this room and the hearts of those that are watching this and that will also watch this at a future date. Father, I thank you for just how you've created us uh, perfectly and intricately in our mother's womb. God, that we image you, God, and we are your children. God, thank you for this truth. I pray that today as we talk from where we uh, left off last week about this foundation, I pray that you will show us your practices and how you are inviting us to take one step and then another into them to align us with your heart and for the heart of your people. Amen. You guys can have a seat. For those of you who do not know me, my name is Paul Stippick, and it is so good to be back with you guys two weeks in a row, right? Come on, it's exciting. So it's, it's a lot of fun to be here. And you know what? Uh, like I said last week, last week was all build up for this week. Last week was a foundation and complete setup for everything that we're talking about today. So you know what? I know Ken said I'm going to do a recap, but you know what? Tough noogies. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We're going to do a recap real quick here. So let's look at this. We talked about this foundation that we set of who we are and whose we are. And so let's start by mentioning who we are. We are image bearers of the Trinity, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is incredible stuff. This is amazing that God, the King of kings and Lord of lords, Alpha and Omega, the one who separated the heavens from the waters and created this expanse and all things in the air, on the land, in the earth, and in the seas, the God who created everything, that is who we image. That's the image who we bear. And what that means is this, that every Every single person in this room bears the image of God. Every single person outside of this room that's watching on a screen right now as well bears the image of this incredible creator. At times we don't image him as well as we should, but regardless of whatever they believe, whatever they think, they bear the image of the King of kings and Lord of lords. The second thing about who we are is this. We are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God has called us to image him, and he wants us to do that by being a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He wants us to bring about his right, his rule and reign. He wants us to restore all things back to good and bring everyone into the family so that none should perish. And the third thing about who we are is this this, we are intentionally and purposely made by God who is the creator of all things. Let me say that a little bit differently for you. You are not a mistake. You are not a mistake. You are not a mistake. So we talked about having this amazing foundation about who we are that is set. 
that we are intentionally and wonderfully made, that we're, that we're not a mistake, that we're a kingdom of priests and a holy na- a nation. We're created in the image of the triune God, of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but at times that foundation is broken. And, and I had a mirror up here on stage last week, and I said, what do you see when you look at the reflection in the mirror? Do you see the truth about who you are, or do you see the lies of the enemy? Do you see that you maybe have too many pounds over here, your, your hairline's starting to recede, you don't sound that good, you don't look that good, you know what, you're kind of, you're kind of an idiot, you're kind of dumb, no one really likes you or wants to spend time with you, you're falling into these sins and again and again and again, are you believing the truth about who you are or the lies of the enemy? And then I said, hey, we're not stopping here today. That's, that's our foundation, which can be broke, which can be shaken, but there is a foundation whose we are built off of, and that is the foundation of who God says he is. This foundation is unshakable, unbreakable, cannot be broken, amen? And so we have this of what God says about himself. So whose we are is this. We are God's, his children. God says that he is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. His love far outreaches and outruns anything that we could ever do. God is gentle and lowly. He is gentle and humble. And I love this last part. It says, God is love, and his love never, ever, 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 ever to infinity ends. Paul, it's great. We have this foundation, but what does that really mean? It means that we're supposed to image God. And how are we supposed to image God? We talked about that when it said that he loved us to the end. And then we placed a cross in front of the mirror, and I said, hey, Listen, if you don't see your reflection in light of the cross, you're missing out on everything because Jesus died on a cross for our sins. He took on our guilt. He took on our shame. He took on our sins, and he was buried. He was hung on a cross with blood pouring out of every orifice of his body. He's gasping for for breath and suffocating and eventually dies on this cross and is buried, but it doesn't end there because three days later, he rose from the grave, conquering sin, death, and the grave so that we could image him. We could have eternal life in him. And so that we could love everyone, each and every one, as if they were our own. We could love all peoples, the ones that don't look, sound, talk, or smell like us, the ones that don't think like us, the ones that don't believe the same things we believe about religion, about sex, about marriage, about everything in between. We're supposed to love these annoying people and these people that just grate on our skin. We're supposed to love them each and every single one as if they were our own to the very end. And that's the foundation that we set last week, this foundation of who we are and whose we are and what are we called to do? To love others, each and every one, as if they were our own to the end. And so this week we're going to be diving into two practices of Jesus. It's the practice of silence and solitude. We're looking at that as one whole thing, and then we're also looking at the practice of fasting. And guys, to be clear, each of these could have their own month of Sunday sermons on them. But we're going to hit the high notes and we're going to dive into silence and solitude. And so one of the things that we're going to be looking at with this, we're going to be diving into Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. And that's where we're going to find ourselves this morning. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Jesus was led to the wilderness. The very first thing, he has just been baptized by John the baptizer, by John the Baptist. And then the Holy Spirit takes him away and leads him away into the wilderness. And I want to bring up a definition of wilderness because it's this, the wilderness is a Greek word that's called eremos. And so we're going to pull up that definition in one second. It says, the eremos is a desolate waste. 
It's a desert. It's uncultivated and unpopulated place. It's barren and solitary place that provides needed quiet. So Jesus was further led by the Holy Spirit up into this secluded place, to this desolate place where he's spending time with his Father and with the Holy Spirit. So this is God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all three together in one place on this earth. And they're talking to each other and they're probably reminiscing about what has been done but what is about to happen and they're strengthening and giving Jesus power and they're giving Jesus direction and so in this moment it's Jesus getting strengthened from it and this is the first point that I want to talk about today this very first thing it says silence and solitude grows and strengthens our relationships with the triune God we image silence and solitude grows and strengthens our relationship with the triune God we image Jesus went up to this mountain with the Holy Spirit and God not because he needed to because from the very beginning of time Jesus was one with God the Father and the Holy Spirit he didn't didn't need to strengthen his relationship by going into silence and solitude he did that for us so that as believers we could understand the importance that silence and solitude is for our lives because it helps grow and strengthen our relationship with the triune God And as he's growing us in this relationship with us, he starts to share with us some amazing truths and amazing wonders. And as we're going to be talking about today, I'm going to mention these people groups a lot. And so we're going to call them the core four, and it's something that's mentioned all throughout the Old Testament. And then you see it lived out through Jesus's life. And so these people groups specifically that we're talking about, that these practices lead us closer to God and also closer to these groups of people, is this, the poor, the widow, the sojourner, and the fatherless. With doing these practices of Jesus, it is calling us closer into love on these core groups of people that it talks about in the Old Testament, and we see Jesus' love in the new. It's the core four, the poor, the fatherless, and the sojourner, and the widow. And so as we're practicing this idea and practice of silence and solitude, as we're mimicking what Jesus is doing, we're growing and strengthening our relationship with God. But one of the other things we see is that Jesus could have been baptized and then started his ministry right away, but instead he went He went where the Holy Spirit led him. He went into the wilderness to be strengthened. And so the second point that I want to bring up today is this. Silence and solitude forces us to bend our will and way to God's will, way, and pace. Silence and solitude forces us to bend our will and way to God's will, way, and pace. God's pace is different than ours. Sometimes we just want to keep on our high horse and go and steady and go strong and continue to do ministry and continue to do life. But instead, God is calling us to settle our minds and quiet our souls. If I imagine me having a jar in my hand that's full of water and sand, and if I shook it up, we'd see this sand start to spin and twirl and whirl around this water going crazy as I kept on shaking it. But as I would put the jar here of this water and sand, after a few minutes, you'd start to see the sand spinning around a little bit less and less. And in 15, 20, 25 minutes, we'd see the sand on the bottom of the jar and this calm water on top. And that is what Jesus is inviting us into with this practice of silence and solitude. He's calling us to calm our minds and calm our souls, to image him. And when we image him, it allows us not only to be restored, but to restore other people, to go into these people groups, the core four, the poor, the fatherless, the sojourner, and the widow, and to love them relentlessly as he has first loved us. 
And so what I want to do is continue to look at these practices that Jesus lived out. And so to do that, we're going to be looking in Mark, in Mark chapter 1, verses 29 through 39. And immediately he left the synagogue. This is Jesus. He left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with fever, and immediately they... They told him about her, and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. We're going to take a break real quick. So I imagine... It like this, where Jesus is healing people. He is literally casting out demons. He's healing the blind, the hurt, the lame. He is in the midst of the core four, the poor, the fatherless, the sojourner, and the widow. They're all around him. He is following his father's heart. He is living out what his father is asking him to do. He is loving this group of people well. He is crushing it in the ministry game. He's just killing it. He is doing some unbelievable stuff. And so it starts to get into the wee hours of the morning. And he's like, hey guys, we, we just need to take a break. We need to rest. We're doing some awesome things here, but let's all, let's all go to our homes and, and rest. And so what does Jesus do? Does he click on a pot of coffee the next morning and start cooking some turkey bacon and some pancakes and some waffles and getting ready for the next round of ministry? Well, let's find out. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus put on a pot of coffee. Nope, that's not what it says. It says he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Jesus was on a roll, y'all. He was killing it. He was casting out demons, healing the blind, the lame, the infirm. And he puts a pause in this because he realizes that just like in silence and solitude, it's not about his glory and his fame. It's actually about his heavenly father's glory and fame. And something else we need to realize that these verses show us is that Jesus also himself needs to be restored because just as much as he is both God and man, he was fully God and he was fully man. He was fully man in the truest sense. And by that, I mean, he felt what we feel. He feels the pain. He feels the sorrow. He feels the exhaustion. He feels the hunger. He feels all of those emotions and things that we do. And when he's doing these things, power is being drained from him. And you're thinking, nah, I don't really believe that, Paul. Well, let us jump to another part in scripture where he's walking through a crowd and all of a sudden there's this woman who touches his robe and he feels the power drain from him. Jesus only does what his heavenly father asks him and tells him to do. And he only does it by the power and the might of the Holy Spirit living through him. Which is also why he says, guys, I can't stay here. I need to go back to heaven so that you can have the Holy Spirit on you and you can do things that are greater than I did. So Jesus is teaching his disciples in this moment and saying, guys, we need to take breaks. We need to be restored. We need to get away to the quiet place so that God can speak to us. In the next version of this, we see in Mark chapter 6, 
verses 30 through 33. And before we read these verses, I want to give a little bit of context. Jesus sends out the 12 apostles to do some amazing and unbelievable works of God. He sends them out to cast out demons, to bring light into darkness, to heal people, to heal the blind, the lame, the infirm, to go to the core for the poor, the fatherless, the sojourner, and the widow, whose God's heart has always been and will forever be for. So these apostles are doing some amazing things, and then they finally meet back up with Jesus. And Jesus didn't stop doing ministry. Jesus was always doing something. He was also healing the blind, the lame, the sick, and casting out demons, and he was bringing light into darkness. And so his apostles, they arrive on the scene, and I love this, verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And, and I love this because I can see this moment where, Jesus, do you, do you know what we just did? This was nuts. We were casting out demons. We were doing some unbelievable people. This guy couldn't see them. blam We made him see. This is unbelievable. This is cool. And Jesus, I'm sure, is giving knuckles, maybe a high five, maybe a little chest bump or something right there. And he's just letting him talk and letting him see this frenetic pace that's going on around them. And eventually these endorphins in this high runs out and they start to feel exhausted. And hey, um, hey Jesus, uh, this, this sub platter, it's empty. Do, do we have another one in the back? I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm hungry. I'm famished. I'm, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm hungry. Do we have anything else? Verse 31, and he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So Jesus let them feel this exhaustion and this tiredness and the fact that they were hungry from their travels. And he says, hey guys, let's, let's break away. Let's go to the boats. Let's go across this body of water. Let's spend some time with, with our heavenly father. And so I can just imagine the scene where the boat's slowly but surely rocking on these gentle waves and this warm breeze is just blowing across the waters. They're, they're laughing and they're joking with themselves, but they're also being restored and refreshed as they're in the presence of each other, but more importantly, they're in the presence of their Heavenly Father. They're broken away from everything and really everyone, and they are in His presence, and He is restoring them, and I'm sure at the same time speaking truth to them. These practices we're talking about today, they're really easy to talk about, but they're really hard to live out. They're incredibly hard and difficult to live out, and I want to bring up this one picture. This is my devilishly handsome son, Sam, whom a couple of weeks ago I was able to baptize him, and he is my son with whom I am well pleased. And so a couple of days before this picture was actually taken, my son, he invited me out to hang outside at our house, and this was a win for me because it wasn't like, oh, hold on, buddy, we're going to do something else. It was, okay, yeah, let's hang out. So we hung out, and we go to the swings that are behind our house, and he's just going, just swinging like normal, and gets on its side, and is doing this weird side swing thing, and he's showing me all these cool tricks and stuff that he's doing, and I'm trying to talk to him, asking questions, and he's sort of listening, but he's more interested in what he's saying, and then I try to impart this lovely fatherly wisdom that I have of all these 10 years that I've been living with him as my son, and you know, he's just not taking any of it, he's not having any of it, but I still enjoyed my time with him. It was a really, really good fun, intimate moment with my son. And as I was reflecting on that experience with this little guy, the next morning I realized in an instant that that's how we are with our Heavenly Father, where we come 
into his presence and we have not so quiet, quiet times where we put headphones in our ears and we listen to music and we're reading a spiritual book and we're going to the coffee house for this great ambiance and really it's just adding distraction after distraction after distraction. And if, if I treated my relationship with my wife how I have for honestly over 20 years treated my relationship with God, we would have two less kids because we wouldn't have been intimate. We, we, I've been inviting people in. I've been inviting all these distractions in. How could my wife and I become one flesh? How could, we, how could we be fruitful and multiply? But if I treat my wife differently, I somehow am missing that same desire for God where I want to be in his presence with just him and myself, living the silence and solitude out and living out this practice of Jesus. And so in the scriptures, we see Jesus living out this practice of silence and solitude. And like I said, it is not easy, and today is not about shaming you into silence and solitude. Today is about me coming here, doing some high-level stuff, but giving you steps to take, so you can take one step and then another. And so we're going to put this slide up on the screen, and there's six steps here, and I'm going to quickly talk through them. It says, you know, simple steps to practice silence and solitude. The first one is find a place that is unique for this activity. So it can be the same chair that you sit in in the afternoon where your grandkids or your kids or whatever it is is running around you, but it is not at that time. Silence and solitude is not going into the midst of craziness, but it is when the house is asleep, you may go and sit on that chair. Or maybe it, it's going into a park, not when everyone's running around you, but when it's quiet and in the freshness of the morning where the fog is just lifting up from the grass. It's finding these moments that are very specifically for this time of silence and solitude for me I do have a quiet time in the morning where I journal and I pray and I do all sorts of things and spend time with God but it's different that is good all of those things are good but it's not a moment where I quiet my mind and am settled and so what I've started to do over this past month because I've only been practicing it for a month is I go out in the morning on my porch there's a chair and right now it's really cold so I have a couple of blankets and I wrap them around myself and I spend this moment of silence and solitude with God. The second point is start with a manageable time. You don't need to start with 20, 30, 40 minutes. You will hate every second of it. Your mind's going to be going crazy. It's going to be torture. It's going to be like pulling teeth. Start with a manageable amount of time. That may be one minute. That may be two minutes, five, ten. For me, what I do is I've started with ten minutes. And sometimes, by the grace of God, he allows me this moment to have settled enough to where I put another five minutes on the timer. And one of the things with this manageable time, I would recommend that you don't just have a clock near you or next to you, but have something like a smartwatch that you can set a timer and you can just put it away and not think about it. Or you can have your phone, but put it away. Do not disturb. Way far away from you, but where you can still hear it when it dings off so that you're not looking at the clock. Okay, it's 1043. It's, it's 1044. It's 1045. Wait, when is my five minutes up? But it's, you're just sitting there in the presence of Jesus. And when your five minutes is up, your 10 minutes is up, it dings, it rings, it buzzes and it lets you know. So come with a centering breath, prayer, or thought. And so this is something that allows us to be centered on where we are. For me, when I started this off, it was also the same time when I was studying for last week. And so it was, God, I am yours and you are mine. I am yours and you are mine. And it's since been a different one where it's, God, your provider. God, your provider. God, your provider. And you say these breath prayers or these thoughts so that it aligns you to where you are in the presence of your heavenly Father and allowing you to listen to him and what he says. The next one is don't try and fix issues. You may have a simple issue like, God, I am just so tired. I can't stay awake for these five minutes. I don't know what we're gonna do. Or it may be something that is more heady. Jesus, I don't know what my wife and I are gonna do. I don't think we can last another day. 
whether it's light or whether it's big, bring those issues to God, but do not try and fix them there. Bring them to him, lay them at his feet, and let them float off. And yes, they may come back, and you may try to fix them, but then that's when you go back to this centering breath prayer or thought and say, God, your provider, your provider, and allow him to bring you back to this place of calm. In this, the second and last point is this, thank God regardless of the outcome. Whether you spent five minutes telling God all about what you did yesterday, or whether you spent 30 seconds in silence and solitude, thank God for that outcome. And I think something that is just as important is having a journal at the ready. Whether it's one minute, maybe you have this revelation and you wait until the end of that minute for you to write it down, or maybe you're going a little bit longer and it's 10, 15, 20 minutes, and you have it at the very beginning of your time, well, yes, it's okay. Let's, let's break out that journal. Let's write down that thought and then going back into this time of silence and solitude. Lord, what else do you want to show me? Lord, what else are you going to bring to me today? And then maybe you're using that new thought as a centering breath prayer or thought. And so these are simple steps for us to take towards silence and solitude. Guys, it's something that the Lord requires. Forgive me. It's not something that he requires, but it's something that he invites us into. He doesn't say, you must spend silence and solitude with me. He invites us into this moment because what he knows is that he can speak in the noise, but more often than not, he chooses to speak in the silence. And we could talk for another 10 minutes about example after example of where we see that reflected in the Old Testament and the New. So this next practice we're talking about, let's read Matthew chapter 4, verse 2. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hangry. He wasn't angry, he was just hungry. So Jesus, after spending 40 days, 40 nights, he was hungry. He had this actual desire for food. But we see this, another practice that Jesus is living out. This another practice that he is inviting us into because he realizes that with silence and solitude and with fasting, it's this full body, whole body worship experience drawing us closer to God and closer to the people that he has drawn towards himself, drawing us closer to the core for the poor, the fatherless, the sojourner, and the widow. That's what these practices are doing. But before we go any further with talking about fasting, I want to add one disclaimer, if you will, and one word of caution, and it's this. I realize that not everyone in this room that's going to be watching this later has a good relationship with food. I realize that some people may have dealt with food insecurity all their life. I realize that some people have bad body images and have struggled with bulimia and anorexia for a portion of their lives. So right now, this isn't me shaming you to fast. This is me saying, hey, let's take a step together. Let's get around some fellow believers of Jesus so that they could come alongside us and not shame us, but help us take that next step when the Lord in his kindness prepares us for it. And so there's two different ideas that I'm going to bring up from that thought and that word of caution. And that is with this, we're going to talk about definitions and we're going to talk about, this is the definition of fasting. Choosing not to indulge in food or sustenance, at times that can include water, for a designated period of time. Fasting, choosing not to indulge in food or sustenance, at times water, for a designated period of time. This is completely different than abstaining or abstinence. So let's bring this up. Abstaining or abstinence, it's the practice of not doing or having something that is wanted or enjoyable. Yes, abstaining or abstinence can reflect fasting, but it is not fasting. Fasting is the removal of all sustenance. 
And at times that will include water for a designated period of time. Abstaining is something different. It's something that's loved and enjoyable. And so maybe for those of you who it would not be wise for a handful of different reasons to fast, it's saying, hey, when my church body comes together in fasting, or maybe the Lord is leading me to fast, maybe it's in his kindness, I'm going to abstain from something. Abstain from some piece of technology or social media, or maybe some sort of food that you really enjoy so that you can come alongside everyone, so that you can further have this whole body worship experience as you get closer to God and what he longs for for you and for those around him as he restores you and restores others. So there's abstaining and there's fasting and there is a difference and I want to bring about this biblical definition of fasting. Scott McKnight has this amazing definition of fasting that when I read it and I look in scriptures, I see it and I agree with it. And it's also the third point that we have for today. It's fasting the biblical definition is this, a sacred and a grievous moment leads to a responsive fasting which can, but not always, lead to results. A sacred and grievous moment leads to a responsive fasting which can, but not always, lead to results. So let's put that a little bit different way, a little bit more simple. It's this, A leads to B leads to C. Sacred or grievous moment leads to fasting, which leads to see results. But one thing that fasting, biblical fasting, is never is this. It is never B to C. It is never pulling a lever so the magic genie God can give you your wants, your desires, or what you think is right and you think is good. That is not what biblical fasting is. And I want to give you two examples before we dive into Isaiah 58. So there's this, the more obvious one, the more experienced one, and that's this, where it's, you know, maybe you had someone in your life that recently passed. Or you can think back to a few years back when maybe a relative passed away for whatever reason it is, and when that happened, when you hear that news, you just don't want to eat anything. And your body's saying that the food would solely this moment that you're having. Which I think is also a little bit silly and funny because as good Southerners, we know that what every wake needs, it's tables full of food. And so after the funeral, after the service, you see tables full of entrees and desserts and sweets and treats and all sorts of good things. And you see the person that this is for just not really even touch. Or maybe because they're, they're nice, they take one little bite, but that's all they do because they realize that all they want to do in this moment is fast. They've had a grievous moment. They've lost someone and they want to fast. And in this moment, yes, they can pray for something, saying, Lord, I know that I just lost my spouse, and it is gut-wrenching, but I also know that my sister is going to be coming to the celebration service, and I pray that you speak to her like no one ever could. So we have this grievous moment leading to fasting, which can lead to results. But then there's another one. This one should hit home with everyone here in this room and for everyone that calls the orchard their home. There's a wall outside in the foyer, in the lobby, that's full of a lot of different light bulbs. You guys have this desire to see 150 people come to know Christ, and I think that is an unbelievable thing. And you guys could do one of two things. You guys could say, hey, church, pull that lever. Let's start fasting. Let's pray our guts out. Let's see that 150 people, because we know what is right for Gilmer County. We know what's right for the people in our midst. We're going to fast. We're going to pray. We're going to do all these really cool things, and God's going to bring, you know what? I bet God's going to bring 250 people. It's going to be crazy. It's going to be nuts. Remember, God is not a magic genie where you pull the lever of fasting, and you sacrifice food, and for him to give you the results that you want instead of the results that he wants for you. 
Or we could have a moment that's, God, I, I, don't, I don't know what is happening around me. I don't know what's going on in Gilmore. But God, you are breaking my heart that I am seeing so much darkness, so much oppression. I'm seeing people go without food. I'm seeing people go without money. I'm seeing the homeless. I'm seeing people that are lost in addictions. God, I am so broken for the people of my community that all I can do is fast. All I know that I can do right now is fast and pray and align my whole body so that it gets me closer to you so that I can image you and so that you can help me love the poor, the fatherless, the sojourner, the widow. God, I know you are drawing me towards this. God, all I can do, all that I can see right now is brokenness, and I know the only thing that can save them is you. So, Father, please align my whole body. God, allow me to fast and pray my guts out, and let me just see whatever you do, whether it's five people or the 450. It doesn't matter, God. Your will, your glory, your way and pace. Do you see the difference? Pull the lever or have God absolutely break you and wreck your heart for what breaks and wrecks his heart, the people of your community. So now that we have this understanding of fasting, what it is, what it isn't, what abstaining is and what it isn't, what this biblical idea of fasting is, let's jump into Isaiah 58, and I kind of find this humorous that we're looking at the practices of Jesus, someone that is in the New Testament, we're looking at the Old Testament, but understand this, it talks about it in John, that Jesus was there from the very beginning of time, the word was God. And God was from there from the very beginning. So this is Jesus, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit speaking through the prophet Isaiah to his people, the Israelites. And so at the time, this is Jesus just talking the talk. But we get to see him in scriptures, in the New Testament, walking that talk. And I love it because also at the same time, I'm not saying that every single moment we're looking here when I mention Jesus' name and, and fasting, it's him fasting. But what I do know, it's because of these practices of aligning himself through silence and solitude and this full body worship of fasting closer to God, his heavenly father, God is restoring him and allowing him to do every single thing that you read about in scriptures. So Isaiah chapter 58 Verses 1 through 5, we're going to break these down. So cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins, yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask me, they ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and, and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with the wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to speak? bread, sackcloth, and ashes under him. Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? I love this. Isaiah gets right down to the heart of it. That we can be doing a lot of the right things but completely miss the mark. And the fourth point that I want to bring up today is this. God requires obedience over sacrifice. God requires obedience over sacrifice. And as we're talking and looking at this practice of fasting, there's four simple words that we can ask ourselves if we're about to start a fast or ask others when they tell us that they're going to fast. And those four simple words are this. In response to what? In response to what? Hey, I'm about to fast. That's great. That's awesome. In response to what? Well, we're going to see 150 people come to know Christ. Good goal. That is great. And you should be excited for that. But remember, God's not a magic genie. 
in response to what my heart is so broken for the people of Gilmer County that all I can do, all I know to do is to sacrifice food in this moment to align my body fully with his, fully coming to worship and loving those that are around me. Those four words help align our hearts and make sure that this isn't just a sacrifice, but that this is an obedient worship of the King of kings and Lord of lords. Verses six through seven is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? This sounds oddly reminiscent of what we talked about last week. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, where Jesus is running towards us and getting down on his hands and knees and saying, hey, 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 I want you to let go of that yoke and that burden that you've been carrying that the world has been putting on you. I want you to loose that burden. I want you to take on my burden and my yoke for it is easy and it brings life and I will carry it with you. This is a picture of our Father running towards us not from us. Verse 7, is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? I love this picture. It's Micah 6, 8. What does the Lord require of you but to do justly, love kindness, and walk humbly with your Lord? It's to love the core four, the poor, the fatherless, the sojourner, the widow. It's to love those in your community that are so burdened by darkness and by the world that they need your light, the light of Jesus that you are imaging to break forth into this oppression that is what this is it's it's these moments that when we decide to fast it's instead of spending the 5 10 15 or 20 dollars that we would have spent on a meal on breakfast lunch or dinner whatever it may be saying lord i'm going to give this money to the people that you are drawing my heart to right now and maybe it's also taking the time that you would have spent at lunch instead of that 30 minutes or an hour about you saying hey you know what i'm going to take this time and i'm going to go serve in the community at a place where god is drawing my heart to to love these people that are around me that need the love of christ Verses 8 through 10. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am, if you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and speaking wickedness. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness, and your gloom be as the noonday. This aligns perfectly where Jesus says in John 8, verse 12, he says, I am the light. And then later on, he says about us in Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16, that we are the light. As we image him, we reflect this light, and it cannot and will not be hidden, and it will bring about God. God's great glory. Understand this, that the Lord, when we image him, when we practice these practices of Jesus, we are running headfirst into oppression, headfirst into darkness, headfirst into the lies of the enemy. And his light disperses all of that. It destroys all of that. And it begins to restore the poor, the fatherless, the sojourner, and the widow. Verses 11 through 12, And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Verse 12, And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repair of the breach, the restorer of the streets to dwell in. This is very reminiscent of John chapter, 10, John chapter 4, verses 10 through 13 and 15, where Jesus is at the well and there's this Samaritan woman that comes and he asks her for a cup of water, and she says something, and he says, hey, if you knew who is asking you for a cup of water, you would actually ask from one from me in return, because my water never runs out. It never runs dry. It never runs out, and it never runs dry. God, when we spend time with him, it restores us. 
It grows our relationship with us. It allows us to image him and reflect him. And we bend our will and our way to his will, way and pace. We get moments where we can speak life into false identities, moments we get to run headfirst into oppression, into darkness. And we get this opportunity to love relentlessly those that are around us. Verses 13 through 14, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Understand this fifth and final point that I want to bring to our attention, this that the practices of Jesus restore us and others. And I love how Scott McKnight breaks down what fasting means as we read the words by Isaiah. It does four different things. It undoes injustice. It releases the oppressed. It feeds the hungry and provides sanctuary for the homeless. It undoes injustice, releases the oppressed, feeds the hungry, provides sanctuary for the homeless. When we fast, when we have this full body worship experience, it aligns our heart, our bodies, our everything with God, and it allows us to image him running headfirst into darkness, headfirst into the lies, and headfirst into oppression, absolutely destroying and obliterating everything of the enemy. The practices of Jesus restore us and others. Like I said, living out the practices of Jesus is not easy. It's actually quite difficult. That's why we are surrounded by our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we can come alongside each other and encourage each other and spur each other on to follow the practices of Jesus. Because when we live these practices of Jesus out, it restores us and restores those around us. What are we supposed to do with this? We're supposed to image Christ. We're supposed to image God and restore everyone, each and every one, the people that are so annoying, so frustrating, so addicted, so wrong in their beliefs about a million and one different things. We're supposed to love each and every one as if they were our own to the end.